EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Fuels Europe. A study from Imperial College London consultants shows there is sufficient sustainable biomass feedstock available to support an ambitious low-carbon liquid fuel strategy for EU transport. Learn more at www.fuelseurope.eu. The people of Central and Eastern Europe wanted to join the European family of free people, a strong community of values and democracy. The recent ruling of the Polish Constitutional Court puts much of it into question. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And it's another busy week in European politics. We've got an EU summit in Brussels Thursday and Friday, focusing on issues including energy prices, migration, trade, COVID-19. And as if that wasn't enough, they'll once again tackle rule of law concerns among some of the EU's own member countries. You just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen taking a pop at Poland earlier this week in the European Parliament in Strasbourg. That was during a debate with Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki and the subject was, of course, that recent court ruling by the Polish Constitutional Tribunal that effectively declared the primacy of Poland's own national constitution over EU treaties. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to last week's episode where we explain exactly what the ruling says and what it could mean for the EU. This week on the podcast, we're going to explore some of the ripples the ruling has already made across Europe. Also in this episode, we'll bring you up to speed with the latest efforts to create a new German government. And we'll introduce you to the man who's running against Viktor Orban to become Hungary's next prime minister. But first, let's get to the podcast panel. So a warm welcome back to Remontaz in Paris. Hi, Reed. Good to be back. Hello, all. Hi there, and hello to Matt Karnichnik, fresh back in Berlin from from a trip to the ancestral homeland in uh, Austria. How are you doing, Matt? I'm good, thanks. Great. Anyway, nice to see you both. We actually got a very nice uh, message from one of our listeners who said she particularly enjoys it when, when all three of us uh, can come together. Yeah, we're happy to see each other too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the beginning of the conversation normally, anyway. Some more than others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, let's start with you, Reem, and talk a little bit about the continuing repercussions of um, the Polish Constitutional Tribunal ruling, which we've talked about before. Uh, We kind of talked about it as the shockwaves began to kind of uh, ripple through Europe from this ruling, which was basically saying that the Polish constitution, Polish national laws take precedence over the European Union, uh, European Union laws, and in some quite fundamental ways, uh, mentioned specific articles of the EU treaties, important ones, which basically this tribunal said didn't apply. And of course, there's been a lot of criticism of that ruling, partly because it's widely held that that uh, tribunal itself is not properly constituted and was constructed through political interference. But that doesn't seem to have stopped quite a lot of politicians in France, including in the mainstream, from being uh, kind of taking inspiration from it, right? 
So that's the big thing, because as we know in France, of course, the far right has always been very Eurosceptical. They, last time around in 2017, Marine Le Pen, the far right leader, wanted to leave the Eurozone, etc., etc. But this time around, it's the mainstream politicians. It's politicians from the Socialist Party. It's politicians from the Conservative Party, uh, sort of hopping on this bandwagon, kind of using the Polish ruling as the perfect news peg uh, during this uh, nascent presidential campaign that is now underway in France, since the French will go to the polls to elect a new president in April 2022. They've used this Polish ruling as a way to kind of come out of the woodworks and and all kind of come out and say, yes, of course, uh, this is an issue of, of sovereignty and national laws should prevail over European laws. Right. And I just wonder where that uh, ends. As we know from the polls at the moment, you know, you would think that Macron and Marine Le Pen would have a runoff in the second round. But, you know, some of these, some of the politicians, for example, Xavier Bertrand from the uh, Les Républicains, it's polling pretty well at the moment, right? It's not inconceivable he could end up in the second round and even as president. And then, then I suppose, want to implement some of the stuff that he's been talking about. So indeed, this time around the election, at least seven months out. So obviously, we we say this with all precautions, but so far it is looking uh, less uh, certain than it was a few months ago that the runoff uh, would be between Le Pen and Macron. Macron seems to be holding very steady in his polling. It hasn't really changed much. And he seems to be almost certain to be in the runoff, at least at this stage, of course. But in terms of who is going to be against him, it could be Le Pen, it could be Xavier Bertrand if he becomes the... Uh, nominee of the Conservatives. It could be whoever the Conservative nominee is. It could be this new firebrand polemicist Éric Zemmour, who is more extreme than even Marine Le Pen. Who knows? It really seems to be sort of an open election. But that being said, what has been very striking is that even people from the Socialist Party, even people from the Conservative Gaullist Party are now coming out and saying, The European Union, you know, this is a question of sovereignty. It should be a a union of nations, as Valérie Pécresse said. She is one of the uh, conservative candidates who is also the president of the region of Paris. We also heard uh, Michel Barnier, who's also from the conservative Gaullist party, uh, who used to be, of course, as our listeners know, the EU's Brexit negotiator. He came out even before the Polish ruling and said that the European laws shouldn't be applied to immigrants immigration because immigration was a sovereign issue. And so you're seeing basically this neo-sovereignism, as political scientists are calling it, really creeping beyond the far right. And the way it's been explained to me by pollsters and political scientists in France is that there is a long-standing feeling among the French population that France is declining in the world, that it doesn't have the same sway as it used to, and that actually the only way for it to recover that is to sort of take back control, if that makes you think of uh, the UK and Brexit or even Trumpian policies, you're not wrong. Uh, And so we're seeing this kind of populist pull uh, happening in France. Now, of course, others can say that the reality is France is just a medium-sized 
country. Uh, and if anything, it is able to punch above its weight because of the EU. Mm. Well, I was just there. Uh, you just got in ahead of Matt, who probably wouldn't even give it medium sized <laughs> country status. I was trying to get ahead of him. <laughs> but uh, the Barney thing is certainly has certainly raised plenty of eyebrows, right? Because he seemed to be wanting a kind of carve out from uh, the Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice and the uh, European Court of Human Rights, which is not an EU institution, uh, particularly on this question of migration, which, of course, did rather leave him open to the allegation that he wanted to do a bit of cherry picking, which he always insisted that Britain was not allowed to do. And then he came around and he kind of condemned what the Polish did. So everyone kind of was scratching their head thinking, what is going on here? Of course, Macron has held steady and has continuously said, this is complete nonsense. The reality is the European laws are made by the nations. They're made by sovereign nations. We all agree on them. This is not something that's imposed by like faceless technocrats, autocrats, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or autocratic technocrats is what I wanted to say. Um, And he's been trying to push that. It seems like he's going to hold to uh, the strategy that he espoused in 2017, which is that he was the only just truly, completely pro-European candidate. He seems to be positioned to be that again. We're going to see if that is going to be a winning bet. Mm. Matt, has there been much in the way of repercussions in Germany or you're just back from Austria, as I said, or has Austria been too consumed by its own domestic dramas recently? Well, first, I just wanted to say that for once I agree with Macron. I think that this is nonsense. (laughs) He'll be relieved to hear that. That's a big boost for Macron. I think this entire issue is going to go away. It is, although the, and this is where I disagree with him, this is the work of faceless technocrats who impose these rules. But those are the rules. This is just a campaign. A big special shout out to our listeners in the European Parliament. Anyway, go ahead. I would would encourage people to just ignore all this. Macron's going to win the election and everything is going to go back to normal after election day. What is going on? Matt Matt is not the doomsday sayer today. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not saying he should win and I'm just saying that's what's going to happen. So, but does Poland just go back to business as usual as well? Uh Poland doesn't go back to business cuz Poland's going to have the EU's boot on its neck uh for a while and I think there've been some interesting things that have happened in the last week in this regard and you mentioned Austria which has a new chancellor as people might remember, and it's obviously not the most important or powerful country in the EU. But he said something I thought that was quite interesting that didn't get a lot of attention when he was visiting Brussels last week on his first foreign trip, where he met with von der Leyen. And he said that he believed that the EU needed to do whatever it needed to regarding Poland, and that Poland basically needed to get in line. That was the message he was sending, which was somewhat different from what we had heard from his predecessor, Sebastian Kurz, in recent weeks and months, who had sent a completely different message, which was that basically the commission should leave Hungary and Poland alone and not mix in their domestic affairs. So I think just within the last couple of weeks, we've seen two important things happen. One is the exit of Sebastian Kurz from Austria, who was much more in the Polish-Hungary camp, or at least flirted with them all the time, and the exit of Babish in the Czech Republic, which means that this sort of unholy alliance that you had there in Central Europe is crumbling or has effectively crumbled. I don't think that they have a strong hand here in the long term, the, the Poles in this standoff. Well, we'll hear more. Also, we're going to talk to uh, our reporter, Lily Beyer, about uh, Hungary, 
where you know change may be afoot there. There's going to be a tough election campaign for sure. But it is quite interesting that the Hungarian opposition have picked a conservative candidate to run against Viktor Orban, who I think would probably cause him uh, more trouble or looks like could cause Orban more trouble than a kind of leftist or liberal candidate. But we'll hear more about that with Lily in a while. Matt, give us a sense also just from your trip to Austria. We talked about the new chancellor, uh, Schallenberg. There was, and we talked about this last week, the suspicion that Sebastian Kurz would continue to run things behind the scenes as the leader of the party, as the leader of its parliamentary group. What are the early signs? Is Kurz indeed the shadow chancellor? Uh, You obviously said that there was a change in tone, change in message on on the EU from Schallenberg. But what are the other signals so far as to how much he's still really very tied to Kurz? So far, it's looking like it's going to be quite difficult for Kurz to play that role because he's losing support day by day, it seems, from within his own party. And there's a lot of speculation about what is still coming down the pike in terms of further revelations in this investigation around corruption in his government, which is is still going on, obviously. So there's a lot of worry within the center-right party there, the People's Party, that keeping Kurz even as the leader of the party and as the head of the parliamentary group could prove problematic in the near to the medium term. And there are also these rumors all over the place this week in particular that there's a crown witness now who's going to testify against Kurz. So there's a lot of sort of smoke there that I think indicates he is uh, far from taking back control. Okay, so it could be a while before anybody makes Austria great again. Well, that said, I don't think it's going to give up easy, uh, to be honest, but I think it's proving a little bit more more difficult maybe than uh, some people, including myself, anticipated uh, just a week ago. Matt, can you also just give us a quick update on Germany? I think since we last spoke, the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Free Democrats have agreed to begin coalition talks. So it looks like that's going to be the composition of the next government. Uh, do you see any kind of major sticking points or, or you know, what are the obstacles in the road between now the beginning of coalition talks and forming a government? That's right. The Germans are very sort of well-prepared when it comes to these kinds of talks and how they plan them out. I know that's a big surprise to people. They first have these preparatory talks, which they've just completed, so people might be confused. Those weren't the formal negotiations for a coalition, which begin this week. They're now preparing for those formal negotiations now that they've agreed to actually hold those negotiations. Yeah, they had the the exploratory talks and then the negotiations. And then, well, and then the pre-negotiations for the actual negotiation. And that's the phase that we're in right now. The negotiations begin over the next couple of days. And I think the biggest obstacle is going to be how to pay for all of this. Because on the one hand, they're agreeing that... They're not going to raise taxes. They're going to maintain the debt break. These were two demands by the FDP, the Liberal Party. And they're also promising the Greens a bunch of stuff on the climate front. They're going to raise the minimum wage for the SPD base and increase spending in various places. So the question is, how do you square this circle financially? And that's going to be, I think, what they have to focus on over the next month to six weeks as they try and tie this thing up. 
Okay, well, we'll see how that develops. Uh, Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after this short message, you'll meet the man hoping to become Hungary's next Prime Minister as the leading opposition candidate in elections next spring. Stay with us. A message from Fuels Europe. A study by Imperial College London Consultants, Sustainable Biomass in the EU to 2050, shows that the total EU potential sustainable biomass availability is more than sufficient to supply feedstock for bio-based liquid fuels to aviation, maritime and a share of road transport. The biomass sustainability criteria applied in the study are those defined under RED2. Biodiversity has also been carefully considered, based on two key principles, conservation of land with significant biodiversity values and land management without negative effects on biodiversity. Low-carbon fuels are, during the transition to electric-powered vehicles, the most efficient way to cut emissions from ICE vehicles and allow the optimization of the use of infrastructures for electrical charging and hydrogen. More at www.fuelseurope.eu So one of the most important elections for the European Union next year takes place in Hungary. That's where the Prime Minister, long-time Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, is running for re-election. As most of our listeners will know, he's the champion of illiberal democracy, as he calls it, a frequent uh, target of criticism from the EU institutions in Brussels and someone who often, in a sense, uh, campaigns against the EU, even though he insists very much that he wants Hungary to remain a part of it. So how that election plays out, I think, will have a big bearing on the future direction of uh, the European Union, to an extent anyway. And uh, joining us to talk about it now is our reporter, Lily Beyer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So um, the most recent development, important development in this uh, election race as it shapes up is that the Hungarian opposition have come together, a very disparate group of opposition parties. And a sign of how serious they think they are about trying to unseat Viktor Orban is that they've come together and they held primaries to choose a joint candidate for prime minister. Uh, Tell us how that's played out. This was really an unprecedented process in Hungarian politics, I think, and it's actually turned out in a very unexpected way. So what the opposition did is they held a two-round primary to pick someone to lead as their candidate uh, early next year during the parliamentary election to be the face of their campaign, the candidate for prime minister. And in the first round, a member of the European Parliament, Klara Dobrev, got first place. The mayor of Budapest, Gergely Karacsony, got second place. And in the third place, unexpectedly, came a conservative mayor, Peter Markizai. And what happened was that the mayor of Budapest decided to make a very interesting strategic choice. And he actually withdrew from the competition. Uh, For those listeners who haven't been following very closely, for a while, or actually for a long time, the Budapest mayor was considered the front runner to lead the opposition. But when he got to second place, he decided actually to bow out and to endorse the conservative candidate, Peter Markizai, who then ended up winning the second round. Right. And so what we had is, in a sense is, um, and you correct me if I'm oversimplifying here, you had two kind of liberal, liberal leaning candidates, first and second, but one of them pulls out and in effect throws his support behind this conservative candidate who then goes on to win. So what was the logic behind 
the Budapest mayor's decision and behind those opposition supporters who decided to back this, uh, you know, a mayor from a much less well-known city than, than Budapest. It's very interesting. Uh, basically, it's a pragmatic choice and it's a strategic choice. So Gergely Karacsony, the mayor of Budapest, decided that the person who won the first round, Klara Dobrev, would be unlikely to win in a general election. Uh, she is a left-leaning liberal. Her party, the Democratic Coalition, sits with the Socialists and Democrats group here in the European Parliament. But her husband, uh, Ferenc Gyurcsány, actually used to be Prime Minister of Hungary. And he's considered quite controversial and the kind of character that a lot of centrist and right-wing voters wouldn't really go for. And so Klara Dobrev, in the eyes of some voters, is very closely associated with her husband, uh, who still leads the Democratic Coalition Party. And so um, what the mayor of Budapest and actually a lot of liberal and left-leaning voters believe is that she would have a very hard time appealing to undecided voters and that it would be very easy for the ruling party, Fides, to campaign against her. And so they made the strategic choice, you know, many uh, liberals and left-wing Hungarians, to back a conservative who they actually have maybe very little in common with in terms of ideology, but who they think can actually appeal to undecided voters. Okay, and you caught up with, I'm going to get you to say his name because you'll say it better than me. Peter Markizai. Right, so you caught up with him recently in Budapest, uh, just at the end of a campaign rally uh, he was holding just a few days before he clinched victory in the second round of that primary. Um, Maybe just paint a little picture for us. uh, Where did you meet him? What was going on around you? And we'll hear as you and I continue to talk some extracts from that conversation you had with him. So I was in Budapest. This was in central Budapest. There was a rally where uh, Marquisai spoke. The mayor of Budapest was there as well, campaigning uh, uh, to endorse uh, Marquisai. And uh, we spoke shortly after the rally. Right. And I think one of the things that was uh, interesting about this is that uh, obviously he's mayor of a provincial city and he aspires to lead the country. And it seemed to me he was quite keen to show uh, that he speaks multiple languages and would be ready to engage with uh, international interlocutors, uh, if you like, in whatever language they might choose. Is it OK in English? Yes. Yeah. yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So English, I, uh, German or French. Oh, I think English. And so, but then yeah. and he agreed to talk in English, which was uh, good for us and for our listeners. Give us a sense of, and we'll hear from him, this from him as well, but give us a sense of, of his pitch in a, in a nutshell. I think his pitch is that he's different both from the ruling Fidesz party and from left and liberal parties that have been in power in Hungary in the past. So he's trying to capitalize on his reputation as an outsider. But as you said, at the same time, he was trying to push back against this notion, which some of his rivals have been promoting, that he's unprepared for national office by trying to showcase his language skills and uh, his experience and also his personality. So his main pitch is that he is someone who's been conservative for a very long time and that his beliefs are genuine and credible. I have the highest chance of defeating Orban Mm -hmm. 
because really, you know, all the campaign that Fidesz has been conducting against the opposition for the last five years, mm-hmm. it's useless against me. Mm-hmm. Of course, I've been a conservative for longer time than Fidesz. Mm-hmm. Fidesz, you remember? Right, and it seemed to me, you know, we were talking just before we started recording that, in a sense, uh, the, the phrase that came to mind for me is something compassionate conservative. So somebody who wasn't necessarily completely opposed to some Fidesz positions or, or on issues such as, as migration, for example, but took exception to the way that Fidesz has run what he calls hate campaigns against them. And so was trying to kind of say, I am a credible conservative, but I'm also a compassionate person. Would that be a fair description of how he's trying to present himself? I think that's how he's trying to present himself. And uh, maybe as some useful background, he did spend some years living in the United States and Canada. And sometimes you do get a bit of a sense that he's trying to emulate a bit the style of politics that you would occasionally see, I think, in the U.S., Let's get into a couple of maybe specifics on, on issues where that have been very controversial in, in Hungary uh, recently, one of them being LGBTQ plus rights. Uh, we know that uh, Fidesz has been widely accused of stigmatising the LGBTQ plus community. And we have discussed, I think, in the podcast of the past, various measures, laws that have been passed in Hungary in that direction. Where does he stand on that as someone who who is very much, uh, you know, plays on his conservative Christian identity? He is someone that does play on this image of him as a as a devout Catholic, father of seven children. But in the campaign, I think part of his effort to try to appeal to the liberal and left-wing voters has been um, him going out and saying that he's embracing LGBT rights. I have defended homosexuals and I strongly believe... Uh, equal rights for same-sex couples. Also something that is quite unusual for a conservative politician in Central Europe to do. Right, and I think it was quite interesting how he made the distinction between his, his religious beliefs and how he would act as a, as a public official. I strongly believe, as a Catholic, that, you know, one thing is my church's stance, which I absolutely share. Another thing is the secular state. So I believe a secular state cannot make a difference legally between people based on their sexuality. Yeah, it is really fascinating, but he is, as you can tell from from the clip, uh, really trying hard to reassure left-wing and liberal Hungarians. At one point in that rally, and this got some laughs, he was saying that voters should be reassured because Jesus Christ was a left-wing person as well. Interesting. Uh, I've I've heard that interpretation before. That's probably a whole separate podcast episode. Um, so we'll leave that there. But what I guess what are the obstacles ahead for him? How is this election shaping up? Maybe give us a sense first of the challenges faced by the opposition, just the internal challenges faced by them now that they have this candidate who obviously not everyone would have wished to be their candidate and then also what kind of uh, obstacles are they going to face um, from Fidesz, from the Hungarian government, from the media that supports the government? Internally, I do think it will be pretty tough. During the primaries, there were some very tense moments in, in debates and during the campaign. And even if this diverse alliance of parties wins, Marquisai will be leading a government where very likely the biggest parties will be left-wing parties. And so he will have to implement a policy agenda that is not necessarily totally in line with his personal beliefs. And it may be quite difficult 
to keep this kind of diverse coalition that includes, you know, right wing forces, uh, left wing forces, liberals, greens, all together. I think at this point, the calculus is that all these parties simply want to defeat Orban and uh, from their perspective, restore democratic institutions in Hungary and worry perhaps about their ideologies a bit later. But we are already seeing you know, internal competition and tensions and all of this under significant pressure from the ruling Fidesz party. And uh, as Marquisar said in his victory speech, he really emphasized this. It's not an even playing field. The ruling party has vastly more resources than the opposition, including um, a lot more access to media and control of the state media. Mm. What kind of criticism uh, does Makisai face, uh, both from other uh, members of the alliance, the opposition alliance, and from, from Fidesz himself? What do they accuse him of? So during the primaries, one thing we heard a lot is some of his rivals on the left uh, saying that he's unsuitable because uh, he's inexperienced. Um, he did spend most of his career in the private sector. He became mayor of Hodmezevashadhe in 2018. Uh, now that he is the candidate, I think one thing that may haunt him is uh, certain controversial comments that he's made in the past. And when it comes to the ruling Fidesz party, I think the main line of attack against him, at least thus far, is we're seeing a lot of the pro-government media arguing that he is too close to the left or even controlled by the left. So they're trying to present him as someone who is not truly conservative. Right. So in other words, the, the people on the left say he's not really a left winger and the people on the right say he's really a left winger. And what if he were to, and of course, you know, there's a whole election to play out beforehand. Uh, how do you think um, he would interact with the European Union? How would Hungary's relations with the European Union change if he were to come to power, if the opposition alliance were to come to power? I think we would see a dramatic change. Uh, of course, this doesn't mean that Hungary will be uh, happily accepting every proposal the Commission will put forward in the future. But I think we will see uh, a much more conciliatory, friendly uh, face from Budapest if the opposition wins. Let's hear that in the words of the candidate himself. How would you change um, Hungary's policy and relationship with the EU? No, that's the biggest issue, I think, because apparently Orban is leading Hungary out of the EU, while we want to be a very loyal, very devout mm -hmm. members of EU and NATO. Mm -hmm. I strongly believe in, uh, in, uh, in uh, aligning Hungary to the West, to the Western Christian culture. Mm -hmm. You know, this is our home for uh, over 1,000 years. Hungary is a very strong dedication mm -hmm. to Western European values, to Christianity from 1,000 years ago. It is really betrayed by Orban in the last uh, few years. I've been a... Okay, so the election is expected in April, is that right? It is expected in the spring, yes. Okay, so that will uh, be something we keep a very close eye on. And of course, uh, we will reach out to Prime Minister Viktor Orban and tell him he's very welcome to come on the podcast so we can uh, hear his voice. And uh, we will uh, reach out to him, but he also can take it if he happens to be listening or any of his uh, assistants or aides that he has an open invitation to join us for an interview. But until then, Lily, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe or follow us so you never miss an episode. And we'd also appreciate you leaving us a rating or even a review. 
If you're shy and don't want to write a review, you can always contact us directly. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Lucas Kotkamp and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>